Hey, everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. I make this show for you, and I hope that you really enjoy it. I have a lot of people that ask me how they can support the show financially, and you can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash preacherboys. You're going to get access to exclusive content, including early releases of episodes. I've got a couple episodes right now that have been released at least a month early over on Patreon. You've got access to things like unique merch, depending on what tier you join, and you get access to some behind-the-scenes content that I'm posting within the group. So head over to patreon.com slash preacherboys and become a member over there today. Every single supporter helps make this show a little bit more possible, especially as I continue to add additional episodes and content every single week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get back to the show. What is up, everybody? Welcome back to the Preacher Boys podcast. Now, excuse my language, but today's episode is so freaking good. I sit down with Megan Chance. She was fresh out of college, hated her job, and she was searching for meaning when she left everything to join a missions trip around the globe where she quickly witnessed oppression experienced by women that she never thought possible. Over the next several years, she befriended women around the globe who had survived sex trafficking, female genital mutilation, and violence so extreme, Megan wondered at the woman's survival. Through listening to their stories, she began to notice a pattern that pointed to systems of injustice that held women back, systems that her childhood church had taught and in which she was complicit. She was changed. Returning to the United States, Megan became keenly aware of how the teachings and messaging surrounding women in her own upbringing were part of the problem. In the process, she began to find her voice, one that spoke out against injustice and moved her into tension with her Christian community. Her book, Women Rising, is Megan Chance's personal journey of transformation, but it's also a Christian blueprint for anyone wanting to confront injustice against women while pointing to a biblical standard for gender equality. With humility and grit, Megan calls Christian women to amplify their voices for righteousness, and she calls the church to listen. Guys, this episode is absolutely amazing. Uh, Megan brought so much heat to this episode and to this interview, and you're definitely not going to want to miss it. And seriously, there's some topics in here that cut real deep. And one of the things that just really blew me away, I'll just set the stage now, is reading Megan's book. Uh, one of the one of the big things that just really shook me was she talked about the statistic that one in five women experience rape. And we talk about the statistic a lot. It's a very common one to see posted, and it is definitely shocking. But when I was reading her book, one of the questions she posed was, if one in five women experience rape, how many men are committing rape? And we never talk about the conversation. We never shift it to the actual problem. And that's one of the big things that she talks about in her book is when we see an issue happening time and time again, we have to look at the systems, the thought processes, and the education that are creating opportunity for it to take place. So whether we're talking about the situation of rape, whether we're talking about female genital mutilation, uh, all these different topics that have become unfortunately so common in the world that we live in, we have to look at the underlying issues and the perpetrators, not just the victims. You guys are really going to appreciate this episode. Obviously, a strong trigger warning on this one. We get into some very heavy topics, including sex trafficking and uh, sexual assault uh, and more. And so please just take care for yourself. Uh, Make sure that you're ready for the episode. But sincerely, I really did love this episode, and I can't thank Megan enough for joining me on the show. If you want to pick up a copy of her book, Women Rising, be sure to head to the link in the show notes or head to the description uh, wherever you're listening to this video and be sure to grab a copy through the link there. But thank you guys so much for tuning into the show, and I'll see you in the episode. Trigger warning. This podcast contains descriptions of various abusive situations. Listener discretion is advised. You are listening to the Preacher Boys Podcast, a podcast shedding light on decades of mental, physical, and sexual abuse within the independent fundamental Baptist movement. The testimonies shared on this podcast are told from the personal experience and perspective of the survivors. Not all legal outcomes are known or final. Any suspect is presumed innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. To find more information about the Preacher Boys podcast and upcoming documentary, visit PreacherBoysDoc.com or connect on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at PreacherBoysDoc. Now, here is your host, Eric Skwarzynski. 
All right, Megan, thank you so much for joining me on the Preacher Boys podcast. Really appreciate you hopping on today. Oh, I am so grateful to be here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So your your book is really interesting. I just finished it up actually last night because <laughs> I just oh, got it in the mail about two days ago. So I'm I uh, I went through it real really quick uh, yeah. and really got to get a, a taste of your experiences, your background, and uh, one of the one of the statements in the book that you made that really stood out to me was you said that you didn't want to be caged. And yeah. for me, when I think of evangelicalism and what it claims to offer is freedom and all these liberation and liberty. Why does evangelicalism lay out the opposite for, for so many women? Uh, I mean, I, that is such a good question. And I think that's what I'm trying to like illustrate with my book is you say this is about liberation, but everywhere women are in chains. And so um, what we see, I mean, from my own story, I grew up in conservative evangelical Christianity and my experience was being taught to cover up all of the time. All my body had to be covered because my body was shameful and would cause men to lust. Um, I wasn't allowed to preach or teach or lead um, because women, I guess, were easily deceived. And because Eve was fallen, I guess all of women were fallen. Um, and my sole purpose, or so I was taught, was to serve the men in my life. So whether that be my father or my potential husband. So all of the teaching was geared. How can I be a good wife? How can I submit to him and obey him and be sexually available to him? And all of these things, obviously, uh, I questioned. I was like, why are why are men and women treated so differently? But of course, not being exposed to different teaching, um, I thought I had to go along with it. And I thought this is what God wanted of me. Um, and it was, it felt incredibly restrictive and limiting. And I felt that I was made wrong because I'm naturally opinionated and outspoken and adventurous and competitive. And all of these things I was told was a masculine trait or masculine qualities. And so, um, it was just all of these gender norms that were extremely restrictive in what I could do and what I could be. And I didn't really have a choice in the person that I became. There was one path for me, and that was to be a wife. I'm kind of curious because obviously a lot of my audience comes from kind of the independent Baptist world. What was your denominational background? Like, like what, what's kind of the context of your youth, I guess, yeah. growing up in it? A lot of people ask me that question, but it was actually non-denominational, um, very conservative, <laughs> non-denominational. Um, but yeah, I was non-denominational until I went to um, college and then I was Presbyterian. And that's actually the first time that I heard a woman preach. Um, so yes, I was, uh, non-denom, just very conservative non-denom. All right. Awesome. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so you mentioned too, that in, in your book is really just as it's a story of you. I mean, it's mm-hmm. you kind of identifying these things kind of through the lens of getting out of the American kind of bubble. And mm-hmm. what was interesting to me is, in the book, you talk about obviously these very extreme situations, and I resonate with a lot of that and seeing kind of these extreme situations where you see it in a, in a kind of foreign context. You see this like, hey, this is different than how we do things. But the further you get in the book, you start realizing like, this is kind of the same. It's all the same yeah. kind of roots mm-hmm. in the problem. So why mm-hmm. do you think it was so important for you to step out of your kind of, I guess, white American comfort zone mm-hmm. to be able to actually see the issues that were happening to you in your day-to-day life? Yeah. So I think a lot of us being raised in the white evangelical church or, um, you know, I've heard a lot about the um, IFB. Um, I'm not, you know, uh, (laughs) that wasn't my past, but I've heard um, not so good things (laughs) about that. Um, But I think there's this idea that um, sin or anything that's wrong in the world is individual. We have this idea that everything we see is individualized. If a pastor um, sexually assaults or sexually harasses or does whatever, we're like, oh, that's that one guy's individual sin. If if a husband beats his wife, that's that one guy's individual sin. Um, you know, everything, that person is homeless because of that person's individual 
Wilson, all of these um, explanations are given. If something's wrong in the world, that's because that person doesn't have a good relationship with God. Um, and so for so long, when I did see injustice, that's that was my, that's, that's what I understood. Okay, that must be because that person uh, isn't praying or reading their Bible enough, or this bad thing happened because, you know, we even see this in the schools. People are saying, God is leaving the United States because we can't pray in schools or whatever. Like this idea that um, it's about our relationship with God, um, whether or not good things will happen to us is kind of like, I guess, for lack of a better term, prosperity gospel mindset that our relationship with God determines if we have a good life, which of course we know is not true. There's so many instances of this, and I don't really know how we got to this kind of theology, but this idea that my individual good works will guarantee me a good life and nothing bad will happen to me. And so even I remember, this was just several years ago, I came forward to a woman I really trusted that I had been sexually assaulted. And she told me that I must have not been in church at that time, that I must have not known God, um, because this doesn't happen in the church. And so the reason I want to point this out is, again, this individual mindset, this is this is somehow my responsibility that something bad happened to me. So going around the world and seeing bad thing happen to woman after woman after woman, and, and, and um, always these same kind of ideas of a woman's place going hand in hand with it. So I talk about um, female genital mutilation. And so I was in an area um, in Kenya where women had survived female genital mutilation. Um, and what went hand in hand with that mutilation was teachings that women belong in the home and that they're supposed to provide for the family and do all the housework and all that stuff and they shouldn't get an education. I'm like, okay, well, that sounds kind of similar to the way I grew up, the idea that women belong in the home. And then I would go to other places and I'd hear this, this idea again that women have a place to be um, in the home and sexually available to men. Those are like the two biggies. Um, and I saw this story again and again and again and again. And what what it did is it changed my thinking from an individual mindset. Like this is just one bad thing that happened to one people or one person to see this is actually happening to women uh, everywhere on a huge, enormous scale. And the way I was raised is, is you don't tell your secrets. You don't tell your shame. You don't share your doubts. It's a very, it's almost like we have to keep the hard things that happen to us secret because um, if, if, you know, we somehow brought it upon ourselves, right? So when I was sexually assaulted, um, the first time I was I was 13 years old, and I didn't tell anyone for over a decade because I had been raised with the belief that um, my body was a stumbling block and would make men do bad things. So even though I was 13, petting a dog, like just finishing petting a dog, I thought, you know, this was my fault, and somehow I'm responsible for this. But when I saw, again, the story happen, not just to my peers, but also to women around the world over and over again, I realized uh, that there's so much to do with the way we view women and the way we treat women. And I think the moment this became crystal clear for me, um, I was working with women um, who were in the sex trade in the Philippines. And so um, a lot of women there have no other options um, available to them. They're trying to provide for dependents, um, multiple children, multiple siblings, parents, um, and sometimes they're even trafficked into it by their family. The way um, they end up there can vary a little bit from story to story, but most often it's 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 a lack of choice. Um, I'm doing this because I have to survive and I have no other way to survive and feed my children. And so um, I was in this situation um, and a, a man called us over, um, the, the organization that we worked with partnered, uh, to help women get out of the sex trade by giving them, um, a full ride to college and a safe place to live and also provided for their dependents, which is usually why women, um, can't leave is because if they leave their, their family starves. And so, so I um, had spent the you know previous night working with women, inviting them to these safe houses where they could get a college education. And th this man called us over. He was an American gentleman, um, and he was about sixty years old. And he was asking us why we were there. And so we told him, 
you know, we're here to like offer uh, women a college education if they're interested. Um, and he's like, oh yeah, that's all, that's so great. And so we turned the question back on him. Why are you here? And he said that he was here because women here are raised right and know how to respect men. And this was in the middle of a tirade against women who didn't know their place. They didn't know that they were supposed to be home and sexually available to men. And so because he couldn't get this respect he thought he deserved, um, he traveled halfway across the world to buy this respect from women. And as he was talking, I was like, something about this seems really familiar. And it just clicked. He sounds like the pastors I grew up with who said that men needed respect above all else and they deserve it and they're entitled to it. We even have prominent evangelical authors like Emerson Egretz who wrote um, Love and Respect, this idea that men deserve respect without conditions. And I think that's when my world really opened up. Like this is not about this guy's individual advice. This is about a teaching that men deserve respect and they can dominate and control women to get that respect that they feel they are entitled to. And that's when I realized, oh my goodness, these these ideas of biblical womanhood that I've been trying so hard to like go along with and honor my whole life, these have been complicit in the oppression of women, not only my own oppression, but women around the globe. And so that's when um, I, you know, my eyes were just really open to the systems and the ideas that are driving um, not only sex trafficking and the sex trade, um, but the violence against women. We live in a society here in the United States that one in three women is the survivor of um, domestic or sexual assault. One, between one in five and one in six is the survivor of rape or attempted rape. And so we have to ask the question, why does this keep happening so often? It's because we are raising our men to be dominant and domineering. This is their gender script. They have to take control. They have to be, um, you know, sexually, uh, uh, what's the word, strong, getting notches in their belt, whatever. Um, And then women are supposed to be submissive and attractive to men. You know, all of our teaching, even growing up outside of the church, even, is how to be sexually attractive to men. So when we're seeing this abused and used in so many ways, we have to look at the way that we're raising um, our children and the way that we're teaching um, about gender roles and gender scripts. Um, There's an an excellent uh, uh, researcher who does a lot that talks a lot about this and his name is Jackson Katz. And he says, uh, he talks about rape culture and he's like, we have this idea that these rapists are crawling out of the swamp, but they're very much a product of our culture. Um, And so, yeah, that's what I realized and, you know, have since been trying to reclaim feminism for the faith um, and, uh, yeah, really confronting these really harmful gender ideologies. You talk about a moment of having like crystal clear, just here Mm -hmm. it is. Like, I understand now this is a problem. And uh, it's everybody that gets involved in some form of advocacy, you know, like it, I, I think of you myself, like I can point mm-hmm. to clear times where the light right. just came on. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess my question is what, what enables some people to see this so clearly, but then you say this, like I, I saw on your social feed, you posted mm-hmm. uh, an email you'd gotten where someone, mm-hmm. you know, and I've gotten plenty of similar emails covering what I talk about, you know, you're, you're misrepresenting Christ, you're leading Mm -hmm. people to hell, you're doing that, like, just because you're talking about this epidemic of abuse that's happening. um, What is blinding so many people when this is not something that's kind of like beneath the surface, it's very Mm -hmm. front and center in so much theology and just church culture and just culture at large. Why are so many people totally blind to it? I mean, it's a really great question. I think one of the reasons is because, as I mentioned earlier, we're not allowed to have doubt, or at least I remember asking questions in church and my leader said, Megan, are you even a Christian? Because you have way too many questions. Um, So this idea that any doubt that we have, any questions that we have, have just been shoved down. And I think on top of that, there's this whole level of spiritual bypassing, right? So um, I think God gave us our body to give us cues um, to understand our ways in the world. But for so often, we've been told our bodies are sinful, they're deceptive, don't trust your body, don't trust your emotions. It's, it's deceiving, you know, the heart is deceitful above all things. And so I think when people, you know, I think 
most of us at some point have known this is wrong. Like this, this theology, this doesn't sit right with me or um, this seems harmful, but, but I'm supposed to trust God. I'm supposed to trust the plan. So I'm going to spiritually bypass my doubts, my um, sadness, my grief, my, my anger, and just focus on the good Lord. And so I can even see this evolution in myself. When I go back and read my journals, I've kept a, a prayer journal uh, since I was 18. So I'm 32 now. Um, and I can see this, this evolution of my prayers being all about spiritual bypassing, really repetitive. God, you're so great. Like almost like God's a narcissist. Like you're so great and so holy and so powerful. And I love you so much. And that was like my whole prayer. Right. And over time I start to get more real and I start to question, I start to have doubts. I start to talk about my grief and my sadness and my anger. Um, and so I think we've been taught in church to just bypass all of those things. They don't exist. Push it down, shove it down and just focus on God because that's the spiritual thing to do. I mean, for example, like how often do we hear, well, God is still on his throne or God's still in control when in response to a tragedy. Um, that's, that's completely bypassing that. And I think because we have taught ourselves to bypass uncomfortability, when we see other people doing that, it becomes a threat. Um, you're, that's the slippery soap. Uh, you are, you know, there. that idea of God is so fragile. I think that's the best word for it, that they think every question is a threat. And I think that is demonstrating that their God is fragile. Their understanding of God is fragile and not strong. And I think the only way you can build strength is to investigate doubts, is to, to, to ask questions like, wow, God seems like a violent narcissist. And and, and the story in the Bible, like, can I, can I sit with that truth and, and, do I really believe God's like that? And if God's, if I don't believe God's like that, then how can I understand this text? Um, and and unfortunately, I think people have just been trained to to bypass everything. And so I think the reason I get um, emails like that is uh, is because people view me as a threat. I am a threat because I am threatening their way of life. I am threatening uh, this this tower that they've built that is clearly fragile. That I can't ask questions about it. Um, and I also think on top of that, especially if it's a white male, uh, the privilege and the, <laughs> that they've been given, um, you know, specifically in the church, spe specifically against women, I find that I often can't have conversations with men who view themselves as complementarian because as a woman, I can't teach them. So their ears are already shut. There's like, why am I even having this conversation? And so, yeah, you're talking about an email where this man first of all, told me I was a false teacher and that I should go to hell, um, that I should repent because I called out gender theology. Um, but he also told me that based on my face, he could tell I was a whore and deserved to be raped. And if I hadn't been raped, it was an injustice. So I also think there's a whole level of misogyny um, in, in this idea of gender role teachings. And we can see this misogyny <laughs> And even like you run like a girl, you throw like a girl, don't be a, a P word. Like all of these things that are quote unquote feminine are, are they're wrong and they're evil and, and they're bad. And uh, so I think there was, you know, the idea that this man probably bypassed his emotions for so long and also was probably just a misogynist and um, viewed women as a threat, especially a woman who was not in her place. So how do we how do we start these conversations? Because one thing that you hit on uh, quite a bit in the book, and this is something that I think everybody struggles with, I know, especially after a after a missions trip, after, mm -hmm. I mean, you were on kind of the most extreme version of a missions trip that you can go on. Um, but, you know, after a missions trip, you know, for myself, the first time I went out of the country in like a real, you know, tangible way, like, hey, this is, mm -hmm. this is completely different. You get really passionate about, hey, there's all these problems, you know, and, and it's not like they're new problems They're you know, it, it, you come back and you're like, hey, people don't have clean water or, you know, they, for me, like going to India the first time, it was like, mm -hmm. there's these red zones and there's prostitution and there's, mm -hmm. and, you know, it, you, you have all this passion, but your advocacy, like you say in your book a lot, it's flawed in the beginning because you right. don't know how to address this. Right. Obviously, if the answer was super clear, people would just do it. Right. You know, you'd like to think so anyway. Mm -hmm. um, so how do you, how do you take the passion when you see these issues, whether it's, you know, uh, foreign injustice, whether it's something at home within a church, 
how do you start the conversation in a helpful and productive way? That's an excellent question. And I think, again, something that we have not been trained to ask in the church. So um, along with this idea of, I mean, we talked about like gender roles and stuff in the church and spiritual bypassing. But I also think there's a huge teaching of almost Christian superiority, like this whole idea that I have what everyone needs because I have Jesus and nothing else matters. Um, and so I, you know, the, even the premise of like, let me give you the good things that you need. And I know best. And and not only is this something that we find in the church, it's something that we find in the United States a lot. There's a huge amount of um, patriotism. I remember being taught in school that America was the best. Like we are the best of the best. Um, and I, I mean, traveling, you'll realize quickly that is not true. Um, we have many things that we need to work on, but I think oftentimes because we think we're the best or because we think we have the answers, we come with this idea of superiority that we don't need to listen. And so I, I talk a lot about in the book about how I saw huge injustice from, you know, female genital mutilation to women being beaten to rape to, to sex trafficking. And, um, I wanted to fix it. And and a part of me thought I could because, you know, I'm white. I, of course, that wasn't my thinking, but that was kind of the idea like, oh, let me give these people the tools they need as if they haven't had, um, you know, as if they haven't tried to fix the problem themselves. And so I actually had this encounter uh, in trying to help women where uh, a man called me out. He was, um, he was the founder of a a micro loan, or maybe not the founder, but he was in charge of the micro uh, microfinance program in in Africa. And he called out my white saviorism pretty hard, saying, "You wrote me an email saying these women are like uneducated and um, you know don't have the tools they need, but you've been here all of a week. Like, who are you to say what they need and what they don't need? Um, who are you to say that they're not educated? Could you like keep several children alive during a drought and know how to farm? Of course, like." Uh, they had education. It just didn't look like my education, but because I was kind of raised with this mentality, like um, almost like this colonialism, like their life needs to look like my life here in the West. Like what they're doing is wrong. It needs to look what, what I'm doing. And so I think the first thing that we need to ask ourselves, if we find ourselves getting passionate or riled up about something, I don't think we ignore that. We don't bypass it, but I think we need to do a lot of sitting and listening and learning. Um, and so for me, I had to sit and listen and learn, okay, maybe microfinance is not the best way. Um, I need, if I really want to invest into this community, I'm going to have to be here for years and years and years um, and understand. And more than that, not just understand, but I need to be in a position of a learner and they're going to teach me what they need. I'm not going to come in here with these solutions that I think they need without sitting and trying to understand the problem. Um, and another example of this is with female genital mutilation. I, you know, I had heard about it in college, but was shocked when it was happening to the girl sitting in front of me. Um, but if I had sat and and learned and did some more listening, I would know that the the women who are making the biggest difference um, in the fight against female genital mutilation are women who survived the procedure or are part of that culture themselves. And so if if I want if I'm being outraged by this injustice, I should get behind the women who have already started fighting this and mm. who are much more familiar with the culture and what's driving the culture. And so it's okay that I'm upset. I should be upset. This is injustice, but I am not an expert and I need to take a seat back and support women who are already more knowledgeable and already fighting this. And so um, it's kind of like I, I ended up doing the work I have, um, I do now is because you know, part of me wanted to stay overseas and to help. And that could have been an option if I was willing to, you know, submit to authority. And, and, and I was, but I also felt like what God wanted of me was to get my own people and get them to see the systemic mm. um, teachings of gender roles and how damaging it is, not just to women here in the United States, but to women around the globe. And I have another example of that. I um, There's a man who, there's an incredible project happening right now called the girl child and her long walk home. And it's this whole move to empower young girls specifically around the world. And there is a pastor who's kind of, um, he's, I believe he's in Kenya. His name is Stanley Muswa. 
and I, I think I'm, I'm not sure if I pronounced his last name correctly, but I was talking to him over Zoom one day and he said that he has women like empowered leading in his church and he has Americans sometimes come and tell him this is wrong, this is bad. Mm. And so we're literally <laughs> exporting this harmful gender theology that women shouldn't be empowered. Um, I mean, patriarchy is everywhere, but especially when we're talking about what missionaries are exporting, it, it's really damaging. I, I really appreciate what you said about empowering the people that are already fighting the mm-hmm. fight. And and again, that's something that really radically changed because um, my, my first, my first job when I, when I graduated high school, I was a, uh, I was an intern doing video projects with organizations all over the place. Mm -hmm. And so I I got to see quick glimpses of how different organizations ran. And then I ended up leaving that. And I worked with a missions organization for about two years with an orphanage and we, and with equipping national pastors. And it Mm -hmm. was a totally different process. It wasn't, it wasn't going and sending me because, because the missions method was find someone like me, put a suit and tie fly out and you're there. Mm -hmm. And in some areas, you know, is that needed because there's nobody there sometimes? Yeah. You know, but, but for the most part, what we would see is we go to these areas where for me to go out, the cost of me moving from the U S going and staying there, like all the different things that, that needed to happen versus finding a local pastor who's already doing Mm -hmm. amazing work and backing him. Mm -hmm. It's, it, it was so much more, one, it was just more practical. It was a lot right. more economical. And it was also like they knew their, they didn't have to learn the language. They didn't have to learn the culture. They didn't have mm-hmm. to do all these things. And it really was, it was a radical shift in how you looked at right. it. And and I, I look at the same way, same with our orphanage. It was a local mm-hmm. there that we found and, and equipped. And I, I look at the same thing happened with the, um, you know, with the Me Too movement or the Church mm-hmm. Too movement is a lot of times you see, you know, and abuse happens across genders, but you'll mm-hmm. see, you'll see like, how can a, a pastor will say, how can I address this? And so many times the answer is let the women who are talking about it, speak about it, you know, yeah. like bring in somebody. Mm-hmm. And that's really been, I've tried to be very conscious about that with this show. And, and like, I, I feel like I can speak to a lot of things within it, but Ultimately, my goal each week is to platform people to share their story right. because that's mm-hmm. what's going to actually make the change. It's not right. going to be, it's not going to be me. It's going to be who's the people that have experienced it. How how can they share their story, and how can I use whatever platform I have to broadcast it out as far as possible? And it's mm-hmm. a, I think that's a really really important perspective to have. Mm-hmm. So, I remember I went to a conference. I was at the Evolving Faith Conference, and. Someone asked someone, my memory is not that great, but they said, how can we, because obviously we know that the church not only struggles with misogyny, but obviously a huge degree of white supremacy, right? We're seeing uh, the church being so complicit in this um, and and really resistant to changing, um, unfortunately. But someone asked, okay, well, how can I make my space more uh, you know, friendly for people of color, specifically black people. And someone said, like, it's not how do we change that space? If you want that, then you need to bring those people to be in leadership. Um, and not like, not even if you really care about learning from them and listening to them, then put them in a position to lead and drive your organization in a new direction. Um, and so that was something that's always stuck with me is like, it's not just like, oh, well, like, let's, you know, do a marketing campaign where we feature uh, people of color. Like, that's not what will attract people. It's doing the actual work, empowering, um, you know, if you're, you want your, your space to be more diverse, um, hire more women, hire more women of color, hire more black women, you know, hire queer people. If you want to understand their perspectives, they need to be in leadership, um, to lead those charges, bring those people in from the margins and have them lead, not from the margins, but center them. Yeah, I love the the quote was really sobering in the book mm-hmm. when you said, when we hold back women uh, mm-hmm. because of their sex, we hold back half the church. And mm-hmm. there's so many things. I and I I've shared this story in the podcast before, but you know, I I heard, I heard whispers of a pastor wanting to do a conference about you know sexual assault in the church. I was like, mm-hmm. that's um, that's awesome, you know, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. And then found out that like he didn't want to platform any female speakers. And I, I just sat there thinking like. 
this is literally the problem is that you've got one side who has the microphone. And I've said this from day one of the show, Mm -hmm. the whole, the whole thing is one side has predominantly held the microphone for a Mm -hmm. very, very long time. As long as microphones have existed, it's been primarily uh, Mm -hmm. men, at least Mm -hmm. um, white men for most of that period. And so when you refuse to give that microphone to somebody else, when you refuse to let someone else speak on it, you're going to see the same thing repeat over and over and Mm -hmm. over again. And I think there's a balance. uh, Tiffany Bloom's book, Pray Tell, kind of talks about this quite a bit. But I think there is a balance of one, understanding the platform and the authority that you have inherently and leveraging that to help move things along. Because there is like, sometimes there there's, for whatever reason, some voices don't get through. So it takes mm-hmm. someone who already is heard mm-hmm. to speak out. But mm-hmm. then there is also that balance of like, you can't just be performative about it. You can't just say, right. like you said, it's a, I saw a TikTok the other day and it was like when the campus photographer finds the one black student, you know, and they mm-hmm. show like 30 pictures yep. of the same person. Like that's not it, you know, like yeah. representation isn't just being seen. Like it's also being heard in a really, in a really meaningful and real way, like real mm-hmm. authority and, and, and power in those situations. Um, Cause that's ultimately what this is, right? It's a power, mm-hmm. it's a power dynamic. Right. It's like, Absolutely. how do you shift that? So mm-hmm. um, bring, bringing this um, kind of back to the, I mean, I guess this could be international, but I guess bringing back to the, like the, the Western context, at least, I think mm-hmm. that's where these stats are from. Mm-hmm. I, one of the things that did, it was like my jaw drop moment in your book. And it was, it was honestly kind of like a sick to my stomach feeling at mm-hmm. the same time was you, you mentioned how little we talk about male involvement in sexual abuse. And mm-hmm. um, I think it's true. Like we talk about the one in five, you know, like that mm-hmm. statistic, mm-hmm. I, I share a ton, I read a ton, mm-hmm. but we, we always talk about that from the female side. Like that's how many mm-hmm. victims there are. Mm-hmm. But one of the statements you said was if one in five women are raped, how many men rape? And for me, that was like, cause it's not, it's not one person running around right. doing all of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, how can we, I guess, where do we take that conversation? How do we, how do we address that? Because it, it hit me as someone like I was, I've never thought about that in mm-hmm. 130 episodes of, this show. Like I've right. never thought like, Hey, if one in five women are raped, how many men? And honestly, I, part of me wishes I never did think about it because it's, mm-hmm. it's scary to think about mm-hmm. how do we veer the conversation away from just naming statistics about what happens to women and start asking questions about like what actions are men taking or what right. actions are the, the abusers taking in these situations? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, the reason I asked that is because, um, I, I, like I said, I worked with uh, women who had been sex trafficked or sexually exploited. And, and um, I, you could help one, you know, one woman, you might be able to get a college education, um, or, you know, maybe even several, but those women are so quickly replaced. And so what's what the question is, if we're going to make a difference, we have to, we have to confront the demand. And so that's what had me start asking about this. Why? Why do men feel entitled to women's bodies? Why do they feel, you know, uh, like they need this sexual release? And why can't they, I mean, to, to be graphic, why can't they use their hand if they need the release? Why do they have to uh, find a woman to, to, to do this? And it has a lot to do with the scripts, again, of power. You, you mentioned power differentials. Um, so, for example, a lot of people, at least growing up in the church, I was taught that sexual assault was due to uh, like sexual urges, like men are more sexual, Mm -hmm. they are more visual creatures. And so this is why men do bad things, which is completely false. Um, I mean, there's so many studies that there's very little when it comes to our brains between men and women. But there's even more evidence that um, when we look at what drives sexual assault. It's actually about power differentials. And so when we hear these stories in the news, like for example, Ravi Zacharias, 
he had power um, over those women that worked in his massage parlors or these other people. And he leveraged that power and that power was eroticized. Um, when, you know, when we hear of like maybe a college professor and a student or a pastor and a congregant, it's always, we always see these lopsided power differentials. And there's um, an excellent researcher, psychoanalyst who talks about this. Her name is Lynn Yonak. Um, but she, she says that power, um, sexual assault is about power um, far more than it is about sex. It might be expressed through sex, but it's more about the need to dominate and control, which again, goes back to these gender scripts that I was talking about. And so I was asking these questions, like, I, I actually don't think I know someone personally, um, that I'd say most of the women I know personally who have shared their story with me have been sexually assaulted. And, and I even think that statistic of one in five being raped, um, between one and five and one and six, I think that's actually low. Um, because a lot of times something might happen to a woman and even her, she's having coming to terms with what happened to her. Um, I've had people ask me, do you think this, this was rape? Um, because there's so many situations from what they think are normal guys, normal friends, where they take advantage, get them drunk, put something in their drink, and they wake up the next morning and they're naked in their bed and they don't have no recollection of what happens. And they're like, well, we were friends and I was drinking. So, you know, maybe like, you know, I was partly responsible, but that is rape. Um, that plain and simple, if someone is not be able to give their full and ex- enthusiastic consent, that is, um, it's rape. And so the question is, if we know so many women, like I mentioned, that have been a survivor of this, how many men? And there aren't statistics out there because I think a lot of men, just like women struggle to call it rape. I think there's a lot of men who probably struggle to say, oh, I sexually assaulted her. Um, I had, I was uh, sexually assaulted when I was 15 by a good friend. I was sleeping in the back of, um, you know, we're driving back from a lake and his dad was driving and I was sitting next to him. And, um, you know, I gave him consent to, to give me a hand massage because I didn't think anything of it. And I started to fall asleep. And as I was waking up, he was moving to different parts of my body, um, which, you know, for so long, I'm like, do we call that sexual assault? Yes. He was touching parts of my body without my consent when he thought I was asleep, but did he know better? And there's almost this idea of like, does he know better? And I, I think we should <laughs> drain our men to know better, but I don't think people would know like that guy. I never would have expected that from him ever, ever. He was mm. my friend. He was 13 years old. I was 15. He was 13. If anything, like that was not something I ever expected. And so I think uh, not only do we have, uh, you know, men not wanting to admit it, even if they think they did it. I think a lot of times they're like, well, that was kind of iffy. And I, I'm not really sure. I mean, she did say no, but I convinced her otherwise. Um, and so I think even men might have trouble, understandably, of saying, you know, I don't think that was a fully consensual encounter. Hmm. Um, I don't, I think my power was leveraged in a way. And I think we really need to direct the the conversations where men are, in, in, you know, evaluating uh, their encounters with women. Do you mm. think that was fully consensual? Was it a full and, and enthusiastic? Yes. Was I, you know, reading into a situation? And I think a lot of this comes from like, I don't think, you know, th- there's this, this trope that feminists hate men. Um, I don't, I don't hate men. I'm married to a man. I think men are great, but I do think there's a lot that is lacking when it comes to our teaching on consent. And I think um, porn is not helpful there when mm. we're learning, uh, you know, the images that are displayed, you know, sometimes like it's, it's a lot about domination and control no. and, 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 and men and young boys and young girls without exposure to other proper teaching of what does sex looks like, what is consensual, what is not, they're going to go to porn for those answers. And um, it's not a good teacher on what does sex look like. And so I think these are all questions that we need to ask. And um, I was talking to a a woman, she, her name is Diane Osterich uh, on my podcast. And her role was she worked as a sexual assault nurse. And so she's the, the person who, um, kind of is, is walking women through when they're getting, you know, poked and prodded after, um, after a sexual assault or mm. after a rape. 
And she tells me, and she's like, we have this idea that good men can't do bad things or like good people can't do bad things. Or like this, we could, we could even tie this to racism. I'm a good person. So I can't be racist. I can't mm-hmm. do racist things. But as we know, there's a system, um, of white supremacy in the nation. I don't want to be racist, but I have from growing up in a racist society have had racist ideals I've had to unlearn and continue to unlearn, right? I Mm. wouldn't want to call myself a racist, but I have done racist things. And it might be hard for me to come to terms with that because I want to think of myself as a good person. And the simple fact of the matter is good men can do bad things. And um, that doesn't mean we, you know, condemn them forever. I think there does need to be accountability for those actions because another statistic I shared is only five in 1,000 rapists face jail time. So five in 1,000 rapists face jail time. And I do think we need to treat sexual assault and sexual crimes with more severity, specifically when we're talking about our justice system. Mm -hmm. We know, for example, that Brock Turner was witnessed raping someone. There was witnesses. And even then it was this trial that was long drawn out where the, you know, the victim, um, the survivor, Chanel Miller was discredited over and over and over again. And in the end, he only spent three months in prison. And that was like best case scenario because there was witnesses. So again, it's, it's this idea that not the justice system isn't for women. And I think we have this idea, like what they did with Brock Turner. He's a good swimmer. He's a nice guy. He was nice to me when we were kids. There's no way he could do this bad thing. Hmm. Um, And I think we need to be real and understand that if, you know, if one in five women are being raped, I don't think there's one in five men are rapists, but I maybe one in 20, maybe one in 10. I'm not sure. There's not statistics out there. Um, But I think, again, that sometimes people that we think could never do this, Ravi Zacharias, people thought he could never do this, are doing it. And Hmm. so if that is, if that is happening, can we ask why and can we address it? And can we have the hard conversation to, to ask why it's happening? Or for example, what even happened with Bill Hybels, um, you know, and, and Shauna Nyquist is, she's one of my favorite authors or, um, and, and the way she responded as like, my dad wouldn't do that. Like, I love my dad. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but he can be a good man and do bad things um, yeah. and to address those things. And it's really important that we do. Yeah, it's it's that's a that's a conversation that's a little bit heavier, you know, like that's mm-hmm. the that's the thing that needs to um that we need to be willing to have and and I th- I think that's where so many of these big problems and it's all a big I mean it's all a big issue, but I think yeah. some of these really really big issues with adults like I mean we've talked about Ravi Zacharias so much, mm-hmm. but I mean it's it is Example is like when I talked to Steve Boffman, who spent so many years like researching all of the lies, mm-hmm. like his question is always, what if someone had stopped him at the first small lie about yeah. his credentials at one of the colleges? Like what if someone had said like, hey, that's not how you get ahead. Like that's mm-hmm. not how you move forward. What Robbie's story was, was a progression of testing the waters of what can I get away with? Even if he didn't intend to test the waters at first. <laughs> Everything that he experienced trained him that he could get away with bigger and bigger things. And I think this is exactly like the example you gave the, I was actually talking to my wife about it um, just a, a, I mean, just a few days ago. Mm -hmm. And I was talking about, you know, there's so many things that teenagers find acceptable things that are basically memes now, you know, like the Mm -hmm. send nudes and the pressure of this and that, Mm -hmm. and we were talking about it and it was like, and we were both like, you don't think of that as like sexually abusive or manipulative mm-hmm. or sexual assault or things like that. And do I think that a 13 or 14 year old boy should be punished like a Ravi Zacharias should have right. been for what he was doing with, you know, all these businesses and all mm-hmm. these structures and these, no, but I think the conversation has to be able to happen. Like, was that okay? Right. Why did you feel it was okay to do this? And I think even, especially in marriage relationships, especially, mm-hmm. especially with Christian couples that are going in out of purity culture, you know, like, and all the, all the misinformation, it's healthy even for spouses to say like, right. was that okay? Did I read this situation? Yep. Right. Did I understand yep. this? And mm-hmm. I think we're so scared. Mm-hmm. One, I think women are scared because they can't start that conversation. Right. You know, they're taught from the pulpit. You don't start those conversations. Mm-hmm. 
But then I think also guys have this because of this narrative of cancel culture, because of this narrative mm-hmm. of, Hey, if you do this, you're done. Mm-hmm. I think they have this panic too. Right. And it's like, I, I, what I've, what I've seen, cause I, cause I've wrestled like anybody mm-hmm. I've wrestled with like the cancel culture versus the, mm-hmm. and some people would say what I do. My whole show is they would say, Oh, that's cancel culture, <laughs> you know, whatever. But, but what I've seen is when you're willing to be open about where you might be wrong, when you're willing to have a mm-hmm. conversation, I don't see people rushing to cancel those people. Right. I mean, I could be, I could be wrong, but like there's things I've talked, I've talked about on the show, like that I've done that I, that I just, it wasn't okay. You know, like mm-hmm. there's things that I've, there's things that I've said that are not okay. There's things I've talked about on the show before. Like there were racist jokes that my youth pastor mm-hmm. taught me that we would go back and forth with. Like, mm-hmm. you know, if I, if I ran for office and that got leaked, you know, probably not be good for me, but I'm saying right. like, I'd rather just be open about it and talk about it and say mm-hmm. like, this is what I've learned from this point, And this is how far I've come from here. And mm-hmm. I just think too often that conversation gets stalled and we just right. don't have it, you know? And that's right. where, that's where, again, I look at some of these guys, you know, like, a, you know, fill in the blank with any leader. Mm-hmm. It's like, where was the person at the first step where they went out of bounds, you know, like with a, with Carl Lentz, you know, when was right. the first, where was somebody saying like, Hey, maybe that was too suggestive what you just said, or, Hey, maybe you shouldn't be, you know, like there's a lot of things like that, that just, that just should be called out in the early stage. Mm-hmm. And I think resources like your book, I think like Tiffany Bloom's book, mm-hmm. I mentioned kind of help start that conversation in a real, like kind of genuine way. I, I mean, I think that's a really excellent point, but I also, again, want to look at power differentials in those mm-hmm. conversations. Cause I think sometimes, for example, if it's a person that has endured, you know, a person of color that's endured a racist comment, it's not that person who's, you know, surviving racism to do the work. I mean, if they feel comfortable, yes, call them out. But oftentimes I think we need to look at people who also have power um, to do, to do that calling out. And so Um, An example of this is I'm always looking out for other women. I know what it's like to be sexually harassed and assaulted. And I know what it's like to go into a coffee shop and you're just trying to get your work done. And some guy sits next to you and he won't stop talking to you and he won't stop looking at your chest. And he won't feel like he won't stop like feeling entitled to your time. And so there is an example um, fairly recently where I was working at a coffee shop. I guess it was pre-pandemic. And this guy came up to me and he's like, take out your headphones. I'm going to talk to you or whatever. And I was just not having that. I made it very clear that I was not interested in having a conversation with him. Um, You know, it went against all of my teaching, right? Because as a woman, I'm supposed to be polite and accommodating and make men feel good. And so it took a lot of willpower to say, no, you know, I'm not, I'm not having this conversation. Um, and, and, And I said it in a nice way, but he eventually gave up, which is what I wanted, Um, And went to, I thought he was going to leave, but what he actually did was find another young girl who was in college, up in a college town, and started doing the same thing to her. And I remember in that moment, uh, looking around, and there was at least five other women besides me watching that interaction, ready to intervene, uh, should anything um, get to, you know, and, and even then what's the, what's the line? <laughs> when do we intervene yeah. and tell this guy to get lost? Um, but we are all watching her and, and waiting and like, do we need, you know, do we need to get involved? And, and fortunately in this situation, nothing got like too crazy. And I think because he was being stared down by about five other women, um, he, he left pretty soon. And that woman who was being, you know, I don't even know the word for it, but like, the guy that was bothering her that was looking at her chest while he was talking to her. Um, she, she said, thank you guys. Like, I can see that you guys are watching. Thank you. Um, that helps me. But I also like feel bad for him. And then we're also trained to feel bad for these men that we say no to. We have to feel bad because we said no, that we don't want this. But I think we also need to shift our mindset there. But I think if we want to be allies in this situation, it's to pay attention. It's to watch It's to use what, strength we have to interfere on behalf of someone else. And so sometimes, um, you know, as I've been doing more work to root out white supremacy in myself and to unlearn racism, uh, my husband and I have pulled over to watch, you know, a black person get pulled over and watch mm-hmm. the situation so that it doesn't 
um, you know, go out of hand um, because that does happen. And so I think it's, it's, it's using, you know, like that person who's getting pulled over doesn't really have power in that situation to stop whatever's going to happen. But maybe if the cop not, and I'm not even saying this cop was going to do anything bad, right? I have no idea. It was probably just a normal cop, but we were there and that person saw that there was people waiting to, you know, to get involved if they needed to. And I, so I think when we look at this idea of allyship, it's, it's not expecting the victim to have to say something, but being willing to step up, even if they're not feeling safe to say something. And even just giving, you know, and and sometimes it doesn't even look, because I think people hear that and they think like, well, I don't want to confront somebody. I don't want to get in a fight with somebody, Mm -hmm. but like even just giving an out, you know, like what's the, um, I, I mean, I've, I've had people on my show that have talked about, you know, there were situations that were in a very bad situation and someone walks in the room and they would just leave or they would just mm-hmm. say, Hey, what's up? And then walk through and like just asking, Hey, are you okay? Or Hey, right. what's going on? You know, like, and mm-hmm. I've had people tell me that they said, if someone had just asked, Hey, what's going on? They would have said it, but they needed permission mm-hmm. to just right. say it, you know, and, or even, um, you know, Tiffany Bloom's book again, she gives an example, mm-hmm. you know, um, just ask, Hey, you want to go grab coffee or, Hey, do you want to go do this? Like mm-hmm. something where they can just leave with you, you know, like mm-hmm. there's so many opportunities like that. Using your voice doesn't have to be this grandiose gesture. Right. It can just be being available and giving them an option to, to mm-hmm. exit a situation, mm-hmm. which is, which is really important. So um, I know we're, I know we're almost at the end of our time and definitely for anybody listening, go pick up a copy of uh, women rising. Um, just do it right now while you're listening to the show, pull up Amazon, pick up a copy. Um, it, my question would be, I like to ask this of authors because I know everyone writes a book with one specific thing in mind and kind of, it, it expands from there. Um, <laughs> if, if, if someone picks up this book, they only pull away one point, which is probably your worst nightmare. They only walk away with one, <laughs> one little kernel that they say, like, I got this from this book. What's the number one thing that you hope that they pull away from it? Yeah, that's a great question. I think the answer would be, and again, it's a hard, cause I'm like, I have so many things. I want them to You're pull like, please away. don't just take one thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, but I think it's looking at our complicity and seeing systems um, again and again, you know, if we're talking about the Bible, it talks about washing your bloody hands before coming to God or doing worship. Like again and again, I feel like God is, is pointing us to see systems of injustice. And um, we see this all over the book of Isaiah and, and Amos. And, and unfortunately we have, have um, really individualized wrongdoing. We really individualize, uh, you know, it's kind of, if someone's hurting, it's probably their own fault, right? So Mm. we see this with racism. Oh, you know, they're struggling to get a job because they're lazy. This is their own fault. Or that person is homeless because, uh, you know, something they did wrong. That woman was sexually assaulted because she was asking for it. And so I want us to pause and number one, uh, reject the idea that people are responsible for their own suffering. But number two, um, I think I want people to see this. Why does this keep happening? There's Mm -hmm. a quote by Nelson Mandela that says, um, I'm going to mess it up a little bit, but we keep pulling uh, people out of the river without asking why they fall in in the first place. And I think we need to ask that question why are so many women sexually assaulted? Why are so many black people killed by police? Why, why, why? And what is my complicity in this system? So if, you know, that was my big lesson, my big takeaway, I was complicit in a system that harmed women. I wanted nothing more than to help them and to help myself because I had been a survivor myself. I wanted nothing more, but I couldn't help or confront uh, the injustice, unless I saw the system and how I was, I was playing into that system by, by being submissive and being quiet and not using my voice. I was allowing that abuse to continue. Mm. And so I think that's the big takeaway is if you, if something upsets you, like dig into it and ask why, why is this happening? And how could me or my church or my culture or whatever it is, my group of people that I come from, my family of origin, how could we be complicit in what's happening and taking responsibility for what happens on this earth? Because I think we are responsible. And um, individually, we can't 
you know, there's, it can feel really overwhelming, but when we get part of systems and networks that are already doing something about it, um, that's where we find our voice and that's where we become powerful. And so for me, it's, it's taking down the system of patriarchy Mm. and partnering with Tiffany Bloom and other women, Beth Allison Barr, other women who are confronting this notion of, of patriarchy and, and, and lending my voice in support of that. That's amazing. Well, thank you so much for, for your work and for, for writing this book and for your podcast, all the, all the work that you're doing to raise Mm -hmm. awareness about this. And seriously, everybody, if you haven't already pick up a copy, um, it's definitely, definitely worth your time. Thank you so much, Megan, for, for joining me on the show today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the preacher boys podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, please leave a review on iTunes and don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at PreacherBoysDoc. Additional information can always be found on PreacherBoysDoc.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.